and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It's a beautiful fall day here in Washington, D.C. Yesterday, I was talking to um, uh, my good friend, Shannon Coffin, who's been on this podcast, and he told me that uh, friends of his have called him and asked, what's wrong with Jonah? Why does he sound so glum and depressed? And so I'm resolving here. I did not realize I sounded so so glum and depressed. Um, I'm not saying I wasn't glum and depressed. I just didn't know I sounded that way. Um, So I'm resolving here to be more chipper. And what better guest to have for chipperness and upbeat conviviality and jocularity than none other than Slate's national correspondent, the remnants sort of uh, in-house lib, uh, uh, none other than Will Salatan. Will, welcome back to the remnant. Uh, thank you. I've been doing my jocularity stretches this morning, so I'm ready to go. Excellent. Excellent. Um, by the end of this our listeners are going to be whistling zippity doodah out of their sphincters. So, um, uh, let's just start someplace sort of easy. I say to you, sir, Mr. COVID obsessive journalist guy, the pandemic is over. I say that the pandemic is now endemic. It's something to deal with like the flu, but when you have two really arguably the best viral treatments ever come up with in human history, that are on the cusp of FDA uh, approval. Um, and you've got 70 something percent of the American population vaccinated, which used to be the definition of herd, herd uh, immunity, not herd mentality. That's a, that's a topic to come later. Um, and you have uh, and a large part of the argument about all of this stuff was that it, the lockdowns and the extraordinary measures were necessary to keep from overwhelming the healthcare system. Well, if you've got treatments that are like 89, 90% effective at, at avoiding hospitalization, never mind death, uh, it, and you have 70% plus of the country vaccinated, it's time to start dismantling this whole thing. What say you, sir? Uh, I mostly agree with that. Um, the, uh, I'm more excited about the um, generation of immunity among the population than I am about the, the pills that, you know, I, because basically just because the, if you get inoculated, you're not giving it to somebody else, right? The, the pill's mm-hmm. only helping you after you got sick, which is after you've already, you know, probably infected some other people. But what's, what's going on is the combination, and this is one place where conservatives are right, the combination of vaccination plus so-called natural immunity, people getting infected, is getting close to saturation levels, at least in this country, right? So we're getting to the point where the, where the virus for now, it doesn't have a lot of places to go. We're still going to have the problem of fading immunity, which applies to everybody, right? Not mm-hmm. just the people who got the shots, but the people who got infected. Um, and so we're going to have to boost, and then we're going to have to see how well these boosters hold. But yes, we're getting to the point where this is like other uh, respiratory viral diseases. And, you know, I, I have, I don't know about other people, I have two different kinds of masks. So I just flew. I flew to Houston and back. I've done it a, a few times recently. And I have two kinds of masks. One is the KN95s, which I'm wearing when I'm serious about trying to protect myself or other people from a situation where you might pass this to somebody who could get seriously hurt. Um, and the other is the performative masks, 
And I have a whole bunch of, of performative masks and I bet other people too, they're like cloth masks. I wear them the way that I'm Jewish with the way you would wear a, a kippah, a yarmulke, mm -hmm. to be polite to other people. I, I live mm -hmm. in an area where a lot of suburban liberals, people you know, want to feel safe. You go into the grocery store, they're all wearing masks. I'm wearing a mask to say to them, I'm respectful of your tradition. I'm trying to <laughs> you know, help you feel safe, but I'm not actually, I'm not actually doing what I would do to, to prevent transmission, which is to wear the KN95. So yeah, I'm kind of where you are on this. What about you? So it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I like the analogy. Um, and I could do a, I, tr I tried to get Pod to talk about this because I think it's interesting how, uh, this is a digression, how I grew up, it was only called, they were only called yarmulkes. And then in like the last 10 years, 15 years, it's almost universally keep us. And, uh, and I, I think it's interesting that, that the cultural change, it's sort of like when you go to Israel, I've only been there once, very hard to find a pastrami sandwich. And like, the thing is, is like a lot of the things that I culturally identified with Jewishness, um, were really a specific Ashkenazi, New York, 20th century Jewishness that aren't necessarily part of where, you know, the majority of Jews are now. Anyway, that we can get, we can circle back to that if you like, but I, I think the analogy is interesting because, and I know you're, 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 you're just using it metaphorically. You don't actually believe this, but when you say I'm respectful of your faith, I think you're actually getting at it at something real going on, which is that there are a bunch of people who have essentially internalized the psychological the, the, the religious centers of their brain are firing pretty hard when it comes to the pandemic. And there's a lot of in-group, out-group tribalism. You know, I've I think we might have even talked about this together before. Jonathan Haidt talks a lot about how notions of hygiene are very closely related to politics um, and, and notions of shame and, and, and orthodoxy and that kind of thing. And I think that one of the problems that, Biden has and the Democrats have is that sort of pandemic forever is kind of a part of their sort of religio philosophical bubble right now. And there's, it creates a real political problem for them to start to even consider contemplating just declaring victory and, and, and moving on because as of now, like the Democrats are in a position where the Republicans of all people are going to be able to run against Democrats as the party of a return to normalcy. And that's no bueno for your, for your guys. What do you make of that? Uh, I, I agree with that last political diagnosis. I don't agree with the pandemic forever thing. This is a place where I think conservatives are wrong. Um, the, it is true that uh, the, I, I think you have a very good insight about religion. And of course, as we know, like Leviticus, a lot of the prohibitions in there were based at the time in, you know, rational, what, the, their understanding of the science of the day, this, this kind of cleanliness will protect you, right? And then over time, that stuff is no longer true, but people still cling to it. It becomes an article of faith. And that's somewhat true of masks, although I, I generally want to keep in perspective that masks were the same thing to do last year. And when the virus is around, masks are a sensible thing still. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, ex the extent of it, 
uh, has become somewhat irrational. So I agree with that part. What I don't agree with is this sort of psychological assessment of Biden and the Democrats as being attacked, and Tony Fauci for that. Well, actually, we'll, we'll, we'll set Fauci aside for a minute. The Democrats do not want pandemic forever. The Democrats want to declare victory. Um, so it's not true that they're trying to cling to that. Um, it's just that, you know, what happened was the Delta variant surged and came into this country right after Biden took over. I mean, the plan A was Biden was going to be the guy who profited from the good timing that the pandemic was subsiding and the vaccine, the vaccinations were coming in and he was going to solve that problem and the economy was going to take off. And then Delta came in and overwhelmed the system and that messed up plan A. So if they can get a hold of, they can get control of Delta, they're going to go back to plan A. We solved the problem. The economy is roaring because we fixed COVID. Um, I, that may be, I think you may be right about specific strategists within, within the White House, although I sometimes think that the, the general White House staff is afraid of the public health bureaucrats and, and, and lets, lets themselves get pushed around too much. But I was speaking more sociologically and sort of in the, the, the climate and conversation of all of this. So like you have people report the New York times, all these places, they report, you know, the test positivity rate as if that's really a, still a meaningful thing. They report about, we hear about, you know, breakthrough cases as if they're terrifying when for the most part, they're not terrifying at all. Um, the whole point of getting vaccinated wasn't that it meant you could never get COVID. It meant that if you did get COVID, eh, it's manageable. It's not going to kill you. Right. And, and you're not going to clog up the medical system for, for, you know, everybody else. And I think there's, there is a remarkable lag time in that kind of thing. I mean, I think we might even talked about this last time you were on. I I've seen, I saw a dude in my neighborhood driving a high end BMW with convertible with the top down alone, wearing a mask. And I, you know, and, and look, and, and we've, we've had this conversation. My listeners are sick of me t saying this, but I oppose both maskophilia and maskophobia. I'm with you that there's a rational case for masks when they're necessary. And I also agree with you entirely. There are times where masks are unnecessary except for politeness's sake. And I generally observe that kind of stuff because I just don't need drama. Um, and I don't think it's that big an imposition to put on a mask if you're going into the supermarket, even if you, know, you I really don't think I need to. Um, but if you, I know, it just seems to me, if you, if you look at the way a lot of the media, with the exception of what's his face, Leonhardt at the times and, um, and certainly all the cable news people, uh, this feels still feels to me like there's an enormous amount of hang time and clinginess, um, to the idea that the, the pandemic is going to go away whenever there's talk about you know, getting rid of mask requirements in schools, people start screaming, you're going to kill the children, you're going to kill the, and you're, you're not going to kill the children. And, um, and maybe it's just an adrenaline addic addiction and crisis addiction, which is a major problem in our culture generally. But, um, I think there are a lot of Democrats so sociologically who are still 
pretty addicted to this stuff. But so, so I agree with the clinging part, but I just don't think it's about addiction. I think it's about fear. I mean, you know, like I'm trying to think of what the analogy is on the right. The people who like, you know, how many, how many guns do we have in this country? Yeah, like 400 million or something. It's like some insane number. And people, every time there's like a rumor that somebody might uh, pass a background check bill or whatever it is, there's all these people running out and buying more guns because they're just terrified the government's about to confiscate all the guns. And so, you know, everybody has the thing that they are genuinely afraid of irrationally. And uh, I just just think masks are one of those things, right? They were, there was a reason at the time, it's like Leviticus, there was a reason why they were really necessary. And there's still a reason why they're useful, but the, the clinging is, we were afraid of this, we're still afraid of this, and it's gonna take a long time before before that fear wears off. I, I, I want to ask you one question at, at some point here. The guy in the BMW, was mm-hmm. he wearing was he wearing glasses? I don't think so. Okay. Because I was going to say one thing that we're totally we've totally lost is the trade-offs of these of masks. Like uh, you know, the I I wear glasses. And if I I've do. got a mask on, if I got a mask on, you know, I'm fogging up the glasses the whole time. If yeah, yeah, I yeah. wear a mask while I'm driving, I'm, I'm, I'm a danger to other people. I can't see the windshield, you know? And there's like, I play in a basketball game where guys are wearing, if you're wearing a mask as was required in DC, that's extremely dangerous. You're being waterboarded as you're playing, you know, kids in school. So all of these trade-offs, we're just ignoring them. So, um, uh, I'm going to move on in a second, but I gotta, I just, I want to put a pin in this because, uh, I have some committed uh, devout Hebraic friends. And I just want to say that there is a, there there is, there, it is a contested assertion that Leviticus was entirely about sort of good dietary practice and hygiene and nothing else. Um, there are people who will say, you know, point out that, that kashrut, which is kosherism is, uh, you know, there were some bugs you were allowed to eat back then. Um, so it's, it's more about a covenant. It's more about a, a, obeying these things. I really don't have, uh, certainly I don't have any large dogs in this fight, but I know I'm going to get email from people saying you let, you're letting this, this secular, you know, Jewish guy like turn, <laughs> you know, the old Testament into pragmatism and it's not that. And yeah. So anyway, you can respond to that if you like, but I just wanted to, I just want to say there are those who say we'll have that response. So, um, all right, so in the context of all this stuff about masks and schools and 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 COVID, uh, just curious, what was your um, what is your theory of the case about what happened in the elections earlier this month? Well, there was clearly a a Republican wave. I mean, uh, you know, if, you, as somebody pointed out, don't try to explain Virginia without also explaining New Jersey. There's just a right. big. I mean, Biden's approval rating sucks. Um, people are unhappy, and um, and I just think that the the, the Democratic bet that um, running against Trump would work flunked. Right, that just didn't. And so, um, the, I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, I'm very familiar with Virginia. That was the one mm-hmm. I was following. I didn't think New Jersey was going to be close. So I'm. I don't know that race that well, but you know, in Virginia, there were people who were looking for. Um, they were unhappy with Biden unhappy with what the, the government they have. And they're look, they're looking for reasons to consider the alternative, to send a message. And Glenn Youngkin managed to become um, acceptable. He became acceptable to suburbanites. He got a lot of Biden 2020 voters. Um, and I think, I, I think uh, 
parental control and education was a big hook for him. And that's just a major oversight on the part of Democrats. They alienated enough people on that, that that really hurt them. Education was such a key issue for, for Yunkin. And so, yeah, for a lot of reasons, Democrats have botched handling schools. Some of it's COVID, critical race theory sort of played into it. We can talk about the way in which it did. You know, McAuliffe with his thing about parents uh, having too much control that hurt. Um, and I just think that was a big hook for people who said, you know what, uh, I, I think I'm going to go with the Republican this time. Yeah. I mean, so I, I have, I'm eager to talk about the critical race theory stuff, but I, I do think the point about New Jersey is the crucial one, because if you listen to the sort of the usual pundits of the left, it's that the the cases made critical race theory was the you know was you know, was a race card it was demagoguery whatever and it would play this outside role and it was dishonest um and uh i'm open to some of that the problem is is that if you think all of that explains that explain that has this all the explanatory power about what happened in virginia you got to ask, ask, tell me, okay, so where was the critical race theory in New Jersey, right? I mean, it was, that was almost entirely, that Chitterelli guy ran almost entirely on taxes. And in, 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 a, in a very real way and in a mathematical way, he did better than Yunkin in terms of erasing more lead, Democratic lead than Yunkin did. It's just that there was so much more lead to erase to be able to win in a state like New Jersey than there was in a more purplish state like like Virginia. And, and then you have the first Republican, what is it? District attorney or attorney general, whatever Seattle was, was elected. And you had the, the defund the police gal in Buffalo that, that lost badly. And, um, and then you have, you know, the, this new Washington post ABC poll, since they've been asking the question of registered voters, they have the biggest lead Republicans have ever had in since 1981, since they started asking the question. And so in that context, you can complain all you like about how Yunkin ran in Virginia. If you think figuring out how to deal with how he ran and how he ran alone is going to solve all the Democrats problems, you got a bigger problem because it was clearly just, it was clearly more about a wave than it was about the specifics of these things about critical race theory and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the uh, critical race theory is obviously uh, a hot button thing to talk about. So we in the media like to talk about it. And I've I looked at a lot of polling in Virginia about it. And it is true. So here's the problem. Critics of critical race theory, right? People on the left who are pissed off about this correctly point argue that it is a, a fundamentally a racial appeal. And I, we can talk about this more, but I, I think it is a very updated for the 2020s version of the ancient Republican tactic of appealing to white resentment and white fear. However, it is it, one of the problems in politics is you get tempted by these monocausal explanations. And I think you've just ably dissected why that's, why that won't work here. That, I, I think what Youngkin did with critical race theory was that he hooked into a lot of Trump voters, um, and, who, who were looking for sort of a, a white resentment kind of appeal, but he managed to converge. He managed to converge that he got, he brought that together with a broader appeal to parents' rights. So there were a lot of people who were interested in 
you know, suburbanites who want, who want more say in their kids' education. And as folks have said, they're watching it on TV. Now they're watching it on zoom. They can see what, what's going on in the class and they may have ish, all kinds of issues with it. And, uh, and, and so he, he had the general theme was parental control. Critical race theory was a part of that, but in no way does critical race theory adequately explain his performance. All right, so th- let's just talk about critical race theory for a second, because it's the elephant in the room and all this kind of stuff. And I think we talked about it, you know, previously, I have no problem with teaching about critical race theory in college and all of that kind of thing. And, um, uh, I have some profound disagreements about critical race theory that, you know, I think it, it's when it becomes monocausal, a monocausal explanation of American history, it's doing a slanderous criminal disservice to American history. But when you want to include it as part of the story of American history, that's fine. My, so on the Virginia side of it, part of my objection is there's a lot of Mott and Bailey stuff going on from liberals about all this stuff. It's when there's no objection, when the schools have, are riding high in the saddle, they talk openly. There are documents on the Virginia, the Virginia department of education website that are critical race theory stuff about how to teach things. And they're unapologetic about it. They say critical race theory is vital. It's important. 1619 project is wonderful and yada, yada, yada. And then when there's pushback, um, the response from a lot of sophisticated and or purportedly sophisticated liberals is this isn't critical race theory. You just don't want to teach anybody about slavery. Republicans don't want to teach anybody about slavery. And I will concede there are some jackass Republicans out there who don't want to teach anything about slavery, but that's not what this debate was about. And all of a sudden, they get very technical and they say, oh, you know, critical race theory is a thing that you only learn in graduate seminars. And, you know, know, we're not talking about Derek Bell. And the problem I have is that who gives a rat's ass about the label in this case? You know, it's sort of like these fights about what can we say woke or can we not say woke? Parents saw what their kids were learning at at a degree that they had not seen before. In the context of the pandemic, and I think the pandemic explains a lot more about anger at teachers than the critical race theory stuff does. And a lot of parents are just like, and I don't like this stuff. I don't like the transgender thing. I don't like the, you know, and I don't like the way they're talking about how white people are racist because they're white. And, and it's the left's response to a lot of this, it seems to me. And the, the, so the, the other day there was a George Carlin clip about bake just dunking on America about slavery and the founders and all that kind of stuff. It's got to be 25 years old. And all of these liberals were retweeting it with this, like they thought they were going to make a very clever, sophisticated point. George Carlin was woke before we knew what woke was. And look, George Carlin was into critical race theory. And that's sort of my point. I, I had to watch all, what is it? Six episodes of roots in my, in a high school class. I learned about slavery as a kid Everybody I knew learned about slavery as a kid. It was like it do- slavery and civil rights dominated, uh, you know, curriculums for most of the Gen Xers I know in terms of like civics or social studies or history and that kind of stuff. And there are a bunch of woke young people who dominate this debate and a bunch of activists who dominate this debate who make it sound like and, and, and Nicole Hannah Jones has, has basically said this and some and some of the other 1619 Project people have said this. They make the they make it sound like no one learned about slavery or race relations or civil rights until two years ago or something. And and I and I re, I find it very condescending and ahistoric and sort of 
memory holing, but I also think it's the kind of thing that a lot of parents are like, wait a second, I'm not racist. I was taught not to be racist. I was taught about slavery. This is different what they're trying to teach my kids today and they don't like it. And will racists agree with that criticism? For sure. But if you're going to lump the suburban moms who voted for Biden with the Trump, you know, the super MAGA, you know, white resentment racists, that's a political problem for you guys. And it's because it's unfair because no one likes to be called a racist when they're concerned about their kids. Rant over. Okay, so I have looked at a lot of polling on this topic. And first of all, I want to concede one important thing or confirm one important thing. If you ask Republicans and you ask Trump voters about the teaching of the history of slavery and the history of racism in this country, they are overwhelmingly in favor of teaching it. Overwhelmingly. Now, they could be lying, but at some point you just have to acknowledge the reality that these people are telling you that's not what we're objecting to. Um, So I think that goes to your point. However, however, when you ask... Yeah. <laughs> okay. So no, go ahead, go ahead. these people have, people in general have very little understanding of what the hell we're talking about when we talk about critical race theory, right? So the colloquial meaning of critical race theory, if you, if you pull people and ask them what it is, is it, it or what they're objecting to, it, it's very clear that they mean um, curriculum or trainings or whatever it is that basic, that makes white people feel guilty makes white people feel guilty for being white. Now, of course, as, as you just acknowledged, that's not what critical, critical, just, just to be the technical point, critical race theory as a, like an actual thing in, in academia, academia is about structures, right? It's about ways in which people are structurally advantaged. They're not in the door. They can't get loans. They can't, they can't, you know, they're, they're in bad schools, et cetera. It's not about prejudice, right? But what people hear is like, you're telling my kid they're racist. You're telling me I'm a racist. It's a guilt thing. And people hate that, right? And they hate it in part because of the essentialism. You don't know anything about me other than my color, that I'm white. And yeah, you're it's, impl- it's, and you're- inter- it's intergenerational collective guilt and identity right. politics, which you know I oppose, you know, and, right. and I, I and, think mm-hmm. you should oppose. Yeah. And and so there's an obvious, you know, like there's a thing I think of as moral friction, like abortion. I'm th- I think abortion should be legal, but there's moral friction because you are killing. A developing human being. That's what that's what you're doing, right? You can argue all day about why it should be legal and how it's a woman's right, and you can agree with some of those things. But there's this fundamental thing that it's gross, right? And it's d- deeply disturbing, and so that's always going to rub against your position. Conversely, with or similarly with race, right? As long as you are pointing at people and saying, because of the color, because I know this one thing about you, you're white, you're part of some power structure, and some guilt applies to you. That's going to have moral friction. That person's going to say, wait a minute. We're supposed to be talking about racism and you're inferring from the color of my skin all kinds of things about me, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just that's just intuitively gross. It, it upsets people. So you, you, you can't be doing that, right? You can't be imputing guilt to people. You can talk about structures and that that's not necessarily a guilt thing. But if you start doing the, one of these bad diversity trainings or bad curriculums, that implies that there's some that every kid should feel like responsible in some way for what for what has gone on. That's that's just going to upset people. Um, yeah. So but, yeah, but that's what's happening, right? I mean, that's that's sort of the problem. I I agree with you. Look, like there are arguments to be made about structural racism, and and that's the whole reason why they came up with things like critical theory in disparate impact. It was partly out of the critical legal studies thing where they said, look, we can't find evidence of deliberate discrimination in a lot of these institutions. So 
since we can't find individual actors who are acting out of malice, we got to look at the larger structures and systems and think about what are the, the sort of algorithms, the ghosts in the machine that are yielding these disparate results that we find so offensive. And now I think some disparate results are absolutely fine. Um, because they just reflect different cultures and different patterns and desires and choices. And it does not bother me at all that more women become veterinarians and more men become cardiologists. Who gives a rat's ass? But some disparate results should cause some concern. I mean, it doesn't cause a lot of people concern that, you know, the NBA is is majority black. It doesn't cause me any concern. But, you know, like it, pick and choose where where is your disparate impact bothering you and where it isn't. The problem is, is that when you try to push back on this on on the excessive use of critical race theory or structural racism theory and or never mind white supremacy, which when I was a kid, white supremacy referred to the Klan. Now it refers to people who don't confess their privilege, which is just a very friggin' different thing. But if you have a situation now where you have people saying, if, if you don't agree with us on critical race theory, you're a racist, which is basically where the anti-racism, uh, you know, Ibram Kendi stuff puts people. First of all, I think it's Ill, I think it's it's grotesque morally as an argument, but it's politically insane because if you tell a white majority that majoritarianism is everything, that racial identity is everything, and that there's nothing wrong with voting with your racial identity's interests over everything else, white people are going to have real white supremacy in this country and people, and people are going to vote against the people calling them racists. So it's, it's, it's soup to nuts, an insane way to have a conversation. Okay. So I, I, we, we, first of all, I'm going to agree with your diagnosis that the, that it's dangerous for Democrats. It's wrong and dangerous to be equating, uh, to be using usually Loosely using the term racist and applying that to people who are whose whose uh, connection to racism is completely marginal at best, right? And making them feel like they're part of a coalition with actual racists. All right, so I agree with that part. However, I want to make one point against the Republican Party here that I think is very important. You talked about, um, I think, in the course of describing, you know, the, yes, there is real critical race theory going on in schools, and you pointed to a document on a website, and that mm. is happening all the time. It's happening all the time that somebody who wants to make critical race theory the big issue can point to some diver some crappy diversity training, some Ibram Kendi, Robin DeAngelo insanity, right? This book, that book. And there's some document I found, you know, on page three of this website where they tell people what teachers what to do. So this is all, I, I think this is, this stuff is extremely marginal, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's nearly as important as the actual structural racial disadvantages in this country. And that's where I disagree with Republicans. And I, so I think it's opportunistic that Republicans sort of find critical race theory in this on this website or in this document or some sort of stupid white guilt, general white guilt thing. And they make that the issue so that they can make the white par parents feel that they are the victims, that they are the ones, you know, oppressed. And while I agree with the substance of the criticism, I just think that's very marginal and it is being used to counteract and overwhelm the much larger problem of, you know, continued segregation in this country, not, not legal segregation, but economic segregation. So I mean, I, let me ask you a question. I mean, like, as you know, I'm, this podcast is called the remnant. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to stay chipper 
um, and zippity doodying out my nethers. But um, uh, I often feel like I'm taking crazy pills because a lot of right wingers are making left wing arguments about things where, you know, it's like that was like 12 Twilight Zones where the character has this crazy day, goes to sleep, and then all of the characters that he met all the actors are playing different roles, you know, and they're just moving the wardrobe around kind of, that's how I kind of feel these days. And so, you know, you have, you have Republicans talking about industrial policy. You got a lot of, you have a growing identitarian sort of movement among, among racist whites, which drives me crazy. Um, and one of the places that I find that the switch came, it sort of reminds me of, remember there's this, there was this episode of The Simpsons that set 20 years in the future and Marge and Homer are in bed watching TV and you see them looking at the TV illuminated by the TV's light. And Marge says something like, you know, Homer, Fox's transition into a full-time 24-hour porn channel was so gradual, I hardly even noticed it happening. Um, and so anyway, I, I bring this up because five minutes ago, conservatives were metaphorically speaking conservatives were freaking out about tom sawyer being removed from schools about you know wor great works of literature with the n-word in them um you know my daughter had to spend a whole year on on um to kill a mockingbird and the whole gist of the class and admittedly she went to a private school where the last time i was there for a parent-teacher conference i saw terry mcauliffe by the way um uh, but so she spent a whole year, her junior year or senior year, um, having to explain, um, why kids should still read To Kill a Mockingbird, even though it's based on a white savior. Um, and, um, and anyway, so like we've had these controversies, Rich Lowry's written about saving Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn or whatever, a bunch of times it's in, and, and a lot of other conservatives have too. And then like, in the space of six weeks during the Virginia campaign, everyone kind of suddenly switched sides. And there's like this debate about Beloved, um, which my daughter had to read, I think is a really inappropriate book for young kids, which was basically the objection from most parents. Um, and it's a dark and bleak thing. Um, but uh, all of a sudden, liberals were aghast and horrified. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard Nicole Wallace talking about and now Republicans want to ban books. You know who else like to ban books? And, you know, and they were like, who are, who are these people to tell us what our kids can read in schools? And then you had Republicans saying, our kids shouldn't be taught these things. I mean, we and, and, and this is on the heels of the, the 180 we did five years ago, where it used to be liberals have ban book week and all this kind of thing. Is there any actual principle in all this that can be discerned or is it just tribal? Okay. Shirts and skins. Oh, it's halftime. We've got to switch sides now. Uh, I, so I, I have not really thought about this as a problem on the left. I, that's just not the people I've been looking at primarily. So you're going to, you, uh, I mean, the, the we'll book stipulate thing. that, that you might've missed some of the stuff that I'm referring <laughs> to, or am I, I, I might have it wrong. That's fine. Okay. So let me, let me, let me sort of broaden this for a minute. Um, I like, I, I like, I'm fond of a lot of what I think of as conservative principles. And I just like wrote some of them down here, fiscal restraint, free markets, national security, family values, law and order. My problem is I don't believe that the Republican party stands for any of this. That's my problem. 
Um, I, and I feel like the Trump years have been this, this, this grotesque display of the insincerity of the Republican Party. Every single one of those things has been betrayed, right? Runaway spending, we're going to regulate big tech, uh, we're going to like suck up to the Russians, um, we, we really don't, I mean, we're going to defend a serial sexual abuser, um, law and order. Come on. The I only mean, thing like, I'll say in response to that, I, look, all the thing I'll say in defense of the Republicans on this is I think the, the more accurate way to describe it is they stand up for all of these things, except when they're inconvenient. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'll anyway, agree with on. that. I'll agree with that formulation. So like, you know, the, the, uh, law and order is the other one where like, oh, we were, we were really against, uh, black lives matter and like the riots of 2020, but suddenly when it's a bunch of white people breaking into the Capitol and, you know, attacking police officers, suddenly we're like, what was wrong with the, who shot Ashley Babbitt? You know, suddenly mm -hmm. we're anti-cop. So, um, it, it, it's, uh, now I'm trying to like, remember your smaller version of the point. Oh, about, the about book, book burning. The, yeah. The book banning. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm agreeing with you about the opportunism. And one of the things that's disturbing to me is there's often an underlying pattern to the hypocrisy. Um, and again, I do not want to be one of these people who says everyone's racist, but like, you know, when you are for the police, when they're fighting black people and you're against the police, when they're fighting white people, uh, that's telling me something. So, mm -hmm. and I, and I don't like it. And I, and I see that pattern sometimes a lot in the Republican party, but I suppose you can make a similar argument about some of the patterns on the left. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's part of the, the, the larger problem is that almost invariably the dynamic is, is when one side is hypocritical, it makes the other side hypocritical because each side weaponizes the principles of the other side, the alleged principles of the other side and uses them as cudgels rather than things they internally want to stick to. And, um, and so, yeah, I do see, I mean, as a conservative, you know, uh, well, let's bring it back to COVID. I thought it was outrageous the way some public health officials and, and lots of democratic politicians and, uh, pundits had no problem with George Floyd protests, but were scandalized by conservative protests. I thought the whole point was the COVID doesn't know your, you know, the virus doesn't know your, who you vote for. And either you have this standard or you don't have the standard. You cannot. And then you actually had people, I wrote, I remember writing about this. Now, you had people actually saying, well, look, racism kills people too. And as a public health issue, it's more, you know, it's worth it to end racism. And I would agree with that if I thought for two and a half seconds <laughs> that the George Floyd protest would end racism. I mean, I'd be like, I would be out there day and night. If I thought, okay, this ancient human problem will be <laughs> over by 6 p.m. tomorrow after this protest is done. It was all self-serving, self-dealing, hypocritical nonsense. And so I see this kind of, I, 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 it takes, you know, when Republicans are for big spending, all of a sudden Democrats start talking about fiscal responsibility and vice versa. The best example of this is like Supreme Court appointment stuff where Republicans take one position that's convenient for them when they're out of power and then they take the opposite position when they're in power and and vice versa. And it's like a it's a in, in French dance, I think they would call it a pas de deux. You know, <laughs> um, it's a it's a movement of two. Um, and so I see it. I, I that doesn't mean I think there's a symmetry here. I think some of the things Republicans do are doing are more grotesque and more outrageous. 
because as bad as I think the, the race riots and the BLM riots were, and they were bad, they were definitely bad. Um, there's just, there's something different about literally storming the Capitol and talking about hanging the vice president so you can steal an election. And, um, and for the party that pretends to be the constitutional party, um, and the party that content, pl- claims to be the law and order party, that hypocrisy bothers me more than some of the, the liberal hypocrisy. Maybe it's the soft bigotry of, of, of low expectations for me about Democrats or something, but, um, there it is. Yeah. So I, 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 well, there's two, I could address two parts on the left. I just think race to some extent, gender, to some extent, um, other you know, sexual orientation, a lot of people, you know, who are sort of, uh, uh, I don't want to say politically correct people who, who want to be, you know, you're not supposed to say woke either, but people who want to feel enlightened, who want to be enlightened, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, they're just mentally paralyzed by race and they're mentally paralyzed by gender and, um, sexual orientation. And they, they don't, they don't, they sort of lose the ability to think clearly or to make trade-offs when that's at stake. So uh, you'll often hear like so- social phrases like read the room or, you know, you'll hear about sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And these are, and I don't want to, like sensitivity was also an appeal used. Um, boy, now I'm bringing something up from your past, the whole ground zero mosque thing from 10 years ago, like mm-hmm. whether Muslims could have a, a mosque near ground zero, suddenly you had the right with the whole sensitivity thing. And again, mm-hmm. it's sort of a short circuiting of mental re- of reflection. So you can't really think clearly about, wait a minute, people shouldn't be getting together in these mass protests. although. But in retrospect, they were outdoors, right? But the point is, so yeah, were a lot of Republican protests that everyone considered right, outrageous. Right, right. Yeah. But the idea is, there's something sacred. I think John McWhorter has this exactly right. We have a new kind of sac. We have a new kind of religion of a, an understanding of profanity and sacrilege around identity, right? Mm-hmm. And we so these are what one mustn't one mustn't uh, in, in question the the Black Lives Matter protest because it's about historic injustice and ongoing injustice. And therefore that's in this injustice category where we where we just step back and defer, especially if we are white or male or straight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I agree with that. The on the other side, I feel like the best critiques, the most apt critiques of the Republican Party now are coming from the orientation, I won't say from the right, from the orientation of actual conservative principles, right? Somebody mm-hmm. who looks at the at January 6th and says, this is an attack on the United States in which people were trying to overturn democracy, overturn an election, defy the rule of law, literally fighting, battling with, attacking the police. Mm-hmm. And if you can't see what a gross offense that is to everything conservatives claim to stand for, just stop using the term conservative for yourself, right? And stop claiming to represent me. So I look at Liz Cheney and say, why isn't every Republican saying what she's saying? Uh, You're not going to get any disagreement with me (laughs) out of that. I mean, um, like, I... I don't, uh, I don't know of any definition of conservative and I know a lot of definitions of conservative because I'm a dork about this stuff. Um, where trying to storm the Capitol to intimidate constitutional officers from carrying out their constitutional duty to certify an election. And in the process, talking about hanging public officials and kidnapping other public officials. And also, by the way, beating up police officers with an American flag. Like you will have to look with a jeweler's eyepiece in the writings of <laughs> Russell Kirk or Irving Crystal or, you know, or, uh, you know, Roger Scruton to find something that resembles 
that could that could give that conservative sanction. It's just it's mass populist, riotous, right wing uh, craziness, and it breaks my heart. You know, and the idea that I mean, we we're talking the day after uh, the Republicans all voted against the censure of Paul Gosar. Um, I actually have a nuanced take on that that I might write about um, because I think Pelosi handled it badly, sort of like with some of the impeachment stuff. But at the same time, if I were the Republicans, I would have ostracized Gosar. I would have changed. I would like literally if I were Kevin McCarthy, if you couldn't expel him, I would tell the sergeant of arms or whatever it is to change the locks on his door every single morning um, and uh, make his life living hell because he's a horrible, horrible human being. Um, all right, so I, I want to switch gears a little bit. You said, uh, I wrote this long, dense piece about nationalism, which we'll bring out from behind the paywall by the time this airs. So if people want to read it, they can. Um, I found it to be a painful thing to write because it was largely just a criticism of Chris Demuth, who was a pretty significant influence on me, and he's a brilliant guy, but he's embraced this national conservatism stuff. And you said that if we wanted to talk about it, you could you could you could play the role of serviceable lib for me. So, um, <laughs> what, what what was your objection to it? Okay, so uh, no, I agreed with your critique, and I wanted to take it further. So, I one of my uh, guilty feelings about having been on the remnant several times is that I have not adequately, um, as we put it, uh, as I would put it, played the lib. Right? I am mm -hmm. I'm kind of in the, a centrist. Um, so I was asking myself what is a place where I have extremely lefty intuitions and can actually have an argument with Jonah? And so I read your piece on, on nationalist conservatism and I thought, this is it, right? This is one place. I don't get nationalism at all, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just that, and, and I agree with all your criticisms, but nationalism per se means nothing to me. I am kind of a globalist. I am kind of, here, here's the way I would put it that'll probably piss off a lot of remnant listeners. Um, I think it is simply good fortune and not at all to my credit that I was born in the United States. I don't feel that I have any right to be here that somebody from another country doesn't have. I think America is an idea. Um, and so all of this stuff about immigration just rubs me the wrong way. Here's where I'm a complete lib. It's not that I think people should be, everybody should run across the border. You know what? We can't have chaos, but I don't believe that um yeah so so, I mean, so all right so that's one thing but i'm instinctively in favor of immigration and against restrictions on immigration legal restrictions um the other thing is like nationalism per se um i think there are conservative principles about what kind of government one should have about say the rule of law or democracy or limited government but those principles can apply anywhere they can apply in denmark they can apply in sri lanka right so uh, I, as long as those principles are being applied around the world, I don't feel some tremendous uh, allegiance to the United States other than that I'm here and I need to protect the people around me. Um, and I especially am concerned that nationalism becomes this fake unifying principle that justifies conservatives or liberal, whoever, whoever seizes on it in betraying every other principle in betraying universal principles, um, and, um, yeah, so all of the things that we just discussed about what, Repo how Republicans have betrayed conservatism can be rationalized by I'm doing this in the name of nationalism. I believe that's what Trump did. And I believe that's what DeMuth is doing in the name of sort of reunifying the party around that. 
Yeah, so I'm grateful for this because it's rare I get to defend nationalism at all, given what a critic of nationalism I am. But, you know, it's a, I think you're missing a few. I think your, your cosmopolitan globalist uh, <laughs> uh, take is missing a few key facts, or a few key, key considerations. Uh, I think you have a perfectly fine grasp of facts. Um, first of all, I like what you said about how you, you believe you're incredibly fortunate to be born here. And you are. Like, behind the Rawlsian veil of ignorance, maybe you wouldn't pick 2021, but you probably pick like 2014. Um, and in the United States is the place to be born at any point in all of human history. If you didn't know whether you were going to be white or black or tall or short or smart or dumb, I mean, America is a wonderful place to be just on your own terms of on progressives own terms for liberal or for human flourishing. Like you can be more self-actualized as a human being in the United States in the 21st century than certainly any place in history. And that's great. That said, that also requires a certain amount of gratitude and about why you're, if you're so lucky, you should have a certain amount of gratitude for the luck and for the country that you're in. And this is what, you know, Yuval describes as, this is Yuval's theory of what conservatism is. It's really fundamentally, it starts with gratitude. And I think that's largely right. I also think patriotism should start with gratitude. Um, my personal take on nationalism. So I think here's where I think you're wrong. Like lots of countries had our constitution in the 19th century. Lots of South American countries basically took our constitution, added some, you know, uh, Spanish diacritical enyes and whatever on it and made it theirs. And they all went belly up because our constitution doesn't necessarily work for a different culture. Um, some of the principles do, but you have to apply them based on the culture at hand. And America has a culture. America was born, America existed as a nation before it became a state for quite a while. The founding fathers believed in the ancient rights and liberties of their English forebears, and they thought that they were being denied them here. There was a very specific English culture here. And I, I'm with Dan, I'm with the Whigs a little bit, that basically the English invented our notions of liberty because the English were so friggin' weird. Um, and, and I mean that as a historical thing. And so anyway, having a respect for the culture and having a respect for the fact that people's parents or grandparents died for this country to keep it a certain kind of country and all that kind of stuff, you don't have to have blind obedience to that, to that stuff, I don't think, because some of our ancestors were wrong <laughs> about a lot of things and, you know, and died for the wrong arguments and whatever. But having some respect for it, um, I think is incredibly valuable and, um, and having some respect for the existence of American exceptionalism, which I think is real, um, uh, not the gloating sort of America's better than everybody is stuff, but that America's just different. You know, Seymour Martin Lipset was writing about this for a century, you know, not a century because he's dead, but, um, you know, America was always more violent than other countries. It was also more religious than other countries. It respects, you know, entrepreneurship more than other countries. We're just different. And that's something to be respected as well. And so my case for nationalism has always been about degree. And some of the listeners are probably bored of me saying this. I always compare it to salt, right? A dish with no salt is bland and boring. Um, a dish with 
just the right amount of salt, just the right pinch of salt, it brings out all the flares and ties all the ingredients together. And too much salt makes it taste horrible. And way too much salt is literally poison. And so all poisons are determined by the dose. And a little nationalism is a good thing. We're about we're on the cusp of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. It's also America's most nationalistic holiday. It's about no creed. It's about no text. It it predates the founding of the country. It is about offering gratitude for this country, for this land, for our friends and our family and our food and our customs and our traditions. And you're not supposed to do anything other than get together and eat and maybe watch football and and say a prayer. And um, it's very blood and soil and it's very harmless. And that's my kind of nationalism, the kind of sort of symbolic tying the culture together, tying families together kind of thing. That stuff to me is harmless. Um, but I'm one of these guys who thinks there's a distinction between patriotism and nationalism anyway. Anyway, I just wanted to defend that there's a case for, na- for, for soft nationalism that I think is very important. And I think there's a case for nationism that is hugely important when you're talking about global affairs. Like, I don't want to be ruled by the UN or the EU. I think I'm a sort of, I'm a global federalist, as it were. Okay, so I like the global federalism. That's the, my favorite argument of what you brought up so far. Um, okay. th- that is to say- You're and very I like anti-Thanksgiving? Fe- is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I, I love that we have federalism. I love that when we have make horrible policy mistakes in this country, they're often made by one state and everybody can look at that and say, oh, I'm not going to do that, right? Right. So like, I, I like that just because of experimentation and I believe that reality is not mono. It's not generally universal. Principles are universal, but like policy, stuff like that, you, you better have ex- local experiments and see what works before you, before you do it nationally. So I like that. And I like that principle extended to, to, to nations. So not, world government can screw it all up at once, right? I agree with that mm-hmm. part. But when we get to principles, I think principles are universal. So the question of like American exceptionalism, I don't want American exceptionalism. I want to understand what makes America great. And then I want that I want us to strive to apply those principles everywhere. I don't want to say, you know, we, we can't like make Afghanistan America, right? But the idea of, you know, dem- democracy and constitutionalism and some respect for human rights and that kind of thing. No, I think we should strive in various ways to, to try to, to bring that to the world. And so I don't want to be better than every other place. I want us to be, uh, to nurse these principles here, to illustrate them and to try to show them to, to, so anyway, I'm, I'm a universalist about what makes America great. That's the way I would put it. Yeah. So I, I think part of the problem is, and it's understandable because a lot of people have ruined the phrase American exceptionalism and most people are introduced to it in a, in a way that is long since departed from its original meaning. Its original meaning was not a grandiose booster braggadocious thing or, uh, or, a, a critical thing. It was a descriptive thing, which is that according to a whole bunch of metrics, Americans were different. This is why, you know, Werner, the German political scientist, Werner Sombart famously asked at the beginning of the 20th century, why is there no socialism in America? Um, it's because we didn't have his explanation, which lots of American historians agree with Bryce and others is that, um, uh, we didn't have a feudal past. And, you know, feudal past of Europe created class consciousness that we've never had here, not in the way that they have in Europe. Um, uh, and, you know, slavery was also, the, you know, what, what did they call it? The peculiar institution because it was so 
in consonant with our fundamental principles. And so anyway, the, the you know, the, my favorite example from Seymour Martin Lipset about American exceptionalism was the metric system. And Marty used to bring this up all the time. He would say, look, in the 1970s, you had Canada and the United States. They both, uh, you know, their governments both told their people, we're going to switch to the metric system. And Canada, which was founded by royalists and loyalists who wanted to stay loyal to the crown, right? Same genetic population, same language, same cultural institutions to a large part. It's a great natural experiment. The only thing that separated the two populations was one were a bunch of boot-licking, throne-sniffing sycophants <laughs> of King George, and the others were like Tommy Lee Jones and, and Firebirds with their heads in their hearts wired together for some full-tilt boogie for freedom and justice. And so 200 years later, the Canadians, all of a sudden, you tell them you have to use kilometers and, and, and centimeters and stuff. They use them. They just say, okay. And Americans are like, that sounds like witchcraft. No way. <laughs> and they just don't take orders from the government in the same way. Now, is Canada a better country? There are lots of ways Canadians are a better country than the United States. I don't agree with a lot of those arguments, but like they're nice people, really passive aggressive, but nice people. Um, but they're just different, right? They're more like Europe and their assumptions about politics and about culture and stuff than Americans are. And so the problem is it's sort of like in the Incredibles, you know, when the kid says, you know, what is it? You're exceptional. Someone tells him he's exceptional. And he says, if everybody's exceptional, nobody is. Um, we've come to believe that exceptional means gifted or great or special. And the way it was originally meant was outlier. American exceptionalism was American outlierness. And, and we are still in many ways an outlier country. And I think a lot of that stuff is great, but I don't want to export it anywhere. I, I agree with you about the principles about constitutionalism and human rights and all that kind of stuff. Maybe not always impose it at the tip of a gun, which I don't think you believe either, but like, Stand up for your, those kinds of principles, I do believe, are universal. But Americans are quirky. You know, it's, 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 it's the stripe speech. You know, we got kicked out of every decent country in the world, and we're mutts. And, and I, I like that about America. Well, we didn't just get kicked out, right? We left, right? Right, I mean, we left, you know, right. In various waves, you know, you, you have, like, the original, like, yeah, relig we're being religiously oppressed. We're going to get the hell out of here. You have later on, you have immigrants who are willing to, like, throw away whatever they have and leave and come to this country and let very difficult journeys to get across the ocean at that point. And so you have a lot of people. I, I do wonder whether constitutionally we've sort of filtered for people who are more enterprising, more willing to leave things behind, uh, and more defiant, right? Um mm -hmm. And it's, to some extent, that's going to be true of other places in North America. But there was something about the settling, you know, the American, the co continent, and the American West that like, I, I, I just wonder about whether we have a lot of people who are like that. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's basically a good thing. Um, uh, I, I don't know about, I, I do get creeped out about the idea of us, like, let's take us in the English. I, I often hear about Anglo-Saxon culture, you know, we came mm. from, you know, we have to preserve Anglo-Saxon culture. But to your point about cultural differences, like I've watched soccer, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that strikes me is, you know, in England, um, in a soccer match, the referee makes a call and the, the broadcasters and the, they're instantly trying to justify the call. Uh, hmm. He saw, he had the best, he had a wonderful view of it. You know, that wasn't <laughs> what we saw, but the referee was in exactly the right place. And, oh, and now, and I, I, he must have had a good reason for it. And, you know, then they start looking at the replay and saying, yes, you can see how the referee felt this way. And what, you know, and Americans exactly the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. Like what the hell was the referee looking at? Right. So there's something about the people who left England and left other countries too, that makes them d different. It's not, a, I mean, it's, it, it might be, 
to some extent genetic, but it's not because you're English, right? It's because mm -hmm. you're the sort of person who like to see things the other way. So yeah, there may be something slightly different about us. I wouldn't want us to make it ethnic and I wouldn't want us to think that we are capable of, of some of these um, universal values in a way that people in other countries are. Oh, I, That's, I agree so with that entirely. And, you know, and yeah. one of the, one of the explanations that people go by is American culture has a lot to thank primogeniture for because in, in England and other countries, the firstborn son got all of the property. So the second born son got a lot of good education, but he had to go out in the world to make his own fortune because he couldn't inherit anything. And so they're, they even called like, I think they called like some group of Virginia landowners, you know, uh, the second sons or something like that. Cause it was like, literally you, you know, and so, you know, second sons are the ones who go join the army, you know, and then when the new world opens up, they're the ones that went off and tried to make their fortune in the new world kind of thing. And that kind of selection bias, I think is a real thing. You don't have to get into genetics or anything. It's just sort of like culturally you're bringing a whole bunch of assumptions with you about starting over fresh someplace else. And I like that. And, you know, and, and forget about Anglo-Saxon thing, bourgeois, right? I mean, I, I wish there was a better word. I wish it wasn't French, you know, but like classic bourgeois middle-class values of hard work, delayed gratification, uh, um, you know, working, you know, working for your kids to have a better future than you did. Um, honest dealing. I mean, you can go through the Protestant work ethic, plus, plus, plus that kind of thing. Right. Um, the thing that breaks my heart the most about what the left and the right are doing, or I should say elements of the left and elements of the right are doing is they're trying to make bourgeois culture a white thing. And that is horrible for America. Some of the, the, I mean, some of the very best Americans, if you value those kinds of values, right? If you think those are like sort of key to the whole game about the success sequence and a decent country with decent people, some of the most American people in this country are non-white immigrant families, Indian Americans, Asian Americans, and they make this a better country. They, and a lot of them were, you know, part of the protests about the, the critical race theory stuff, you know, and, and what some of these arguments about you know, changing admission standards to punish bourgeois, hardworking immigrant families who like make their kids do really well. So they could go to Stuyvesant or Jefferson high, I think are evil. And I also think it's evil when Paul Gosar type dickwads talk about how like, you know, this is a country for white people or Christian people or Christian nationalism and all that kind of, it's grotesque to me. I want universal standards about this kind of stuff. Um, and I, I, and I think the whole, oh, that's how white people behave or that's a standard for white people thing is pernicious and, and is very bad for the people it would help most. Right. Now, this brings me back to nationalism because although I like your articulation of nationalism, I like any articulation of nationalism that says nationalism really is really about underlying principles. We can call them political principles. We can call them cultural principles, but they're underlying principles, which in theory could be applied anywhere. Right. But my, my concern is that actual nationalism in practice is used to subvert principles and create this sort of ethno identity. I agree um, that entirely. Yeah. I agree that entirely. I, I, that's not my national. My nationalism so, is, is ceremonial almost. Right. It's and cultural. I feel like no. mm -hmm, the politi political national, the nationalism that actually works in elections, I feel like is an appeal to gut level um, ethnic identity. And 
it's it 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 works because that's humans are tribal. It doesn't work because it's right or because it's good. It works because there's something there's a fundamental weakness in people that we're susceptible to tribal appeals per se. And yeah, the, so that's I'm afraid of it for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I I think I mean I I think there are things that are beyond. I think there's a lot of white chauvinism or whatever the right term is is white ra- racist stuff in aspects of nationalism, but there are also non-racist aspects of nationalism, you know, militarism, having flyovers at football games, black guys and Asian guys are cheering that stuff every bit as much as white guys are. Some of that stuff is outside of politics. Um, And one of the things I really despised about what Donald Trump did is he tried to make a lot of that stuff Republican or Trumpist rather than American. And, And the Republican Party does some of that too. And I really, really don't like it. In fact, I'd be in favor of getting rid of the flyovers at the football games and all the rest in general. But um, uh, my problem with nationalism is that nationalism is, is tribalism. It is, and there's no limiting principle to it. And, you know, it's funny. I can talk to conservatives and like, do you guys remember what the black nationalists believed? Right. You know, and, and they'll be like, oh, they were terrible. They were the black Panthers and whatever. And I was like, okay, well, what, what by what principle is black nationalism terrible but white nationalism isn't right it is still trying to reduce people to some one tribal identity that ultimately boils down to loyalty and loyalty to a tribe and which is what all identity politics does and i don't like it because conservatism is is the conservatism that i believe in is it's a checklist of principles and one of those principles is, is that the individual is the irreducible political unit of American, American politics, not American society, American politics, and that one person can be right and the entire crowd wrong. Nationalism always sides with the crowd. And I find that grotesque. Uh, yes. And now I feel terrible because I started out with this to hoping that we would have a disagreement and we ended up agreeing. I apologize. I, I'm just trying to be so <laughs> chipper. Um, last bit of punditry and then I'll, I'll set you free and you can get out of the closet. And again, listeners, he records this in a closet. He's like literally in the closet. I wasn't making any other, <laughs> but, um, and not that there would be anything wrong. Anyway, anyway you get my point. It's so, not only uh, a closet, it's a closet full of women's clothing. My wife. Are we closet. even allowed to say <laughs> women's clothing anymore? Um, so, uh, um, what would you have Biden do to get out of the hole that he is in? Wow. Um, well, you get to be all, his advisor and he's going right. to do what you tell him to do. What do you tell him to do? So I'm, uh, can I, I can apply my own biases here. Absolutely. So, this is, okay. you're like a CNBC guest. Okay. who's just going to talk about the stocks you own. Okay. Right? So yeah. I, I am what is called on the right, a squish. And I don't know what the left term, but I'm a, I'm a sellout centrist. So I am, I'm, my number one concern is uh, pretty much when I went through those conservative principles, I believe in all of those, but I'm concerned about this, the endurance of this country, the endurance per se of, um, of constitutional principles, of the rule of law, of democracy, uh, of the separation of powers, those kinds of things. And so I'm, I very, I am, I believe that the Republican party has completely lost any moorings. Um, that has become a party all about power. And it is desperately, desperately important. I mean, I believe that what happened in the last four years is that people, politicians who claimed that they stood against tyranny and that they would protect the world from it, 
um, proved to be complete cowards, that they folded to it when it came to the United States, that they're still enthralled to it. So I believe the Republican Party must be kept out of power. Given that that's my overriding idea, I want the Democratic Party to practice the broadest possible politics um, in order to maintain a, a, a majority coalition until the Republican Party suffers enough politically, suffers a series of beatings such that it changes and reverts to, uh, it re remembers where it came from and defends those principles again. So that means abandoning Trumpism, which has not at all happened. Um, therefore, I'm not primarily concerned about passing you know, various elements of Build Back Better, uh, except to the extent that like, you know, it does universal pre-K or does parental leave or any of that stuff, help preserve a political coalition that keeps the Republican Party out of power, that keeps its head underwater long enough till it, will, till it says, okay, that's, we, we have to change. Um, so I'm, that makes me very political. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm looking at but I'm I'm also willing to listen to arguments on the left that in order to maintain that coalition, we need to do enough for people that they feel like they're getting something. And clearly they don't feel that right now. Right. So all this them fighting among the Democrats about the exact contours of this, you know, one and a half trillion, two trillion dollar package. Insane. It's so insane. You, we're in this crazy world where Democrats feel like they won't be in power for another 10 years. So they have to program 10 years worth of spending. Like that's nuts. Joe Manchin is like, let's spend this much now. Right. Mm -hmm. And then let's see where we are a year from now, two years from now in a normal world, you could do that. And that's what we should be doing. Right. Do that. Um, stop fighting over every little bit. We agree on this much Pass that, that much you pass the infrastructure bill passed a, a, a limited build back better, then you have an agenda of other stuff you can pass later. So I'm not so interested in the fight about that. Um, beyond that, there's a fundamental problem with Joe Biden, which is that Joe Biden, Donald Trump was a crappy president, but he was a really good salesman. I mean, he could, he, 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 he took credit for things very effectively. Bill Clinton was a very good salesman. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden is terrible. He's absolutely terrible. Nobody has any idea what they've already received from the government, what they would receive under Build Back Better. Um, and so he's just not getting any credit. And I think that's undercutting all the politicians below him. And I, Jonah, I don't have a cure for that. I can't make, you know, a nearly 80 year old guy, a better salesman than he is. And he's already lost whatever energy he had. He's got other people out there. I would send Pete Buttigieg out there and other people who are, who are good at like making the case for what you have received from and what you are going to get as a result of democratic government End of rant. No, it's not a rant. I mean, um, I mean, I, I, I just hate to tell you this is that that it's not looking good <laughs> for your heart's desires right now. I mean, I, I say that as a pundit, and I don't say that with any gloating, really, because I hate both parties and um, for different reasons, and you know, whatever. But like uh, um, I, the, I think Joe Biden blew it in really fundamental ways. When, uh, first of all, Afghanistan, we're not going to revisit the policy of Afghanistan, but it turns out, hey, lo and behold, Americans don't like losing wars. And, um, and he misread the, he misread the popularity of getting out of Afghanistan, um, as intensive for an intensity of desire to get out of Afghanistan. And if you had told Americans that we could only get out of Afghanistan, if this happens, they would have said, don't do it. Wait till later. But anyway, I think the real place where you blew it was 
um, you know, I'm a broken record on this is when the Republicans passed the, 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 the infrastructure bill on that moment, Joe Biden had accomplished what he vowed to do. He'd already done a 1.9 trillion thing for COVID relief stuff. He said, I, I'm coming to Washington to make Washington work, to work across the aisle. I know how it's done. I've been here for a long time. Competence, competence, reassurance, normalcy, yada, yada, yada. He got infrastructure week done, which under Trump was like waiting for Godot to get infrastructure done, right? I mean, it was a big deal. And rather than pull a George Costanza and leave the room on a high note and say, I did it, Nancy Pelosi, you got to get your guys to vote for this and we're done. That's my first year in my office. I've fulfilled my entire mandate. He says, oh, and by the way, you can't have this thing that's popular, that was really great, unless you also get past this $3.5 trillion, very controversial thing that nobody really wanted except for the people who are going to vote for Biden no matter what. And that was like June 24th. His presidency has been going downhill ever since. And I think the biggest problem he's got is that he no longer can sell people on the competence thing. And that's tragic for him. Um, and he has this inability to deal with the facts on the ground in a timely manner. I mean, they're, it's like they're afraid to admit that inflation is real because they said before that inflation wasn't real and progressives have been saying inflation doesn't exist anymore, trillion dollar coins, yada, yada, yada. and there's something really annoying about telling people not to believe the receipts at the supermarket that tell them that they're paying a lot more for things and, um, or at the gas pump. And I don't know how he gets out of it. I, I, I honestly believe he needs to do like a massive sister soldier thing, you know, and say, we're not going to do what these people want anymore. Um, you know, I disagree with whether it's critical race theory or Anthony Fauci or whatever it is, he's got to pick something. Anthony Fauci is probably a bad idea, but, but he's got to pick something that signals that he is not a pushover for the progressive wing of the democratic party. Um, because independents have turned on him, Moderates have turned on him. People who voted against Trump for him in 2020, um, are now all saying they're going to vote for Republicans to punish him because they want normalcy. And I just think it's a disastrous place for him. And so the Republicans are going to, I don't think the Republican, this, this means that your worst case scenario is true, that the Republican party becomes even worse, um, in every regard, if it gets it back in power, but I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing to worry about. Um, but I don't think it's going to happen unless he reverses these trends in the next 363 days or whatever it is. And I just don't see how he does it. Well, that's a long time. And I've been is, so wrong. Is. I've made lots of wrong predictions and they've been in like a, a week or two week time frame over the course of a year. A hell of a lot can change. Um, to, on the point of like Biden not, you know, going through with the infrastructure bill, that wasn't his call. I mean, what the reality was, the Republicans picked up enough seats in 2020 that the Democrats were so squeezed that uh, the people on the left left wing of the Democratic Party in the House were able to hold that bill, that infrastructure bill hostage. It was crazy, in my opinion, for all the reasons you had just outlined, and it did them a lot of damage, and they lost Virginia in part for that reason. And, and um, you know, it's not a coincidence that after getting 
the this bloodbath in the 2021 elections, the Democrats released the infrastructure bill, right? Like they, they sort of, they got the message that that hostage taking backfired on them, but Biden couldn't really control that. Um, so I don't, I, just, really I, I, mean, I, I understand the argument. I just don't agree with it. I mean, I, I think that Bill Clinton could have figured this out, right? Bill Clinton got NAFTA passed, you know, with a lot of Republican votes. And if you pick a fight with AOC or Elon Omar as a Democrat, I don't know what the mathematical exchange rate is, but it's going to pick you up Republicans because there are a lot of Republicans from purple districts and purple states that want to seem like they're working across the aisle. And so left-wing opposition invites right-wing support. And I I just don't, I don't know if Biden could have done that. I mean, Jonah, the honest answer is that a lot of, for Republicans, the easier thing was to like vote against the infrastructure bill and then take credit for it, which some of them are doing now. Right. So I think that's, I I, I don't think he, I don't think that option was going to work out for him. What Bill Clinton could have done, we could do now if he were president was he would do a much better job of just talking to the public. And I mean, Biden gives these 30 minute speeches. He, he mumbles, he wanders around. I mean, you can see the way he thinks. Um, you know, Clinton would have had like inflation, right? You would have had a Democrats. The president could have been out saying, look, we have it. We do have inflation right now. It's not, it's, it's happening. We're coming out of COVID. We have, I mean, it's a product of like, we did a great job of pumping enough money into the economy that people are able to buy things. Right. And the demand, the growth of demand is outstripping the growth of supply and that there are other factors going on, but that is the number one reason why we are now having inflation. I know it's hard. We're going to get through this. We're going to get supply up to the level of demand. Things will be better a year from now. Um, I think that he, that that point could be made more persuasively. What we're going to get instead, apparently, from what signals I'm getting from Democrats, is you know it's going to be class warfare, right? It's going to mm-hmm. be um, from your point of view. It's going to be that the that they're going to blame the greedy companies for like hiking prices more than people. I mean, that's just not true, right? Mm-hmm. But that's going to be the argument because that's the Democrat that's. If Democrats don't have nationalism, what they have is like, you know, the the evil corporate, the evil companies are like trying to screw you. And that's that's the reason for everything. So, yeah, I don't. But in a, in a year, a lot can happen. And I think the number one thing that will happen is that even though Biden isn't saying it, the su- supply chains will pick up to the level of demand. They, you thank you, capitalism. Right. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, some government policy to open the ports, but mostly the economy will begin to heal itself. And so a year from now, Democrats will be in a better position. Will it be in good enough position to hold the House? You know, almost certainly not. All right. We've gone well over an hour, and um, I I, want to try to remain somewhat loyal to my zippity-doo-dah promises. So... um, uh, maybe we'll just end it here, but, um, uh, so it's happy for you to end on the Democrats losing the house. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm Henry Kissinger in this. I, I, I want, you know, it's a pity both can't lose. Um, uh, and you know, and you know, I, I talk about the remnant, which is sounds like, like, um, this depressing sort of concept that where there's these bedraggled, you know, migrants in the desert trying to find, you know, you know, s- solace and comfort, you know, in, in harsh times. But I increasingly think, you know, I mean, I, I'm a big David Shore. I, I buy David Shore stuff pretty passionately. And I think it applies to Republicans in a different but similar way. Both both parties, elites are in a major are in major bubbles. These nationalist conservative guys, they show up, you know, in a Hyatt in Orlando and they see 200 young kids 
and they're like, oh my God, we have the youth on our side. And, <laughs> um, and, you know, and never mind that a hundred of the kids are from friggin' Hungary, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, um, and I, and so I know I talk a lot about the remnant, but I actually, be, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be more chipper. I actually took a lot of comfort out of what happened in Virginia. Um, um, because it showed that, that if Trump stays on the sidelines and you actually have candidates who run like grownups, um, you know, sensible conservatism can do okay. And that's why I thought the way Biden ran was encouraging because I think the country wanted moderates. And then because of the internal dynamics of the Democratic Party, he went a different way. Internal dynamics of the Republican Party have Kevin McCarthy, you know, what did I say the other day? that? Um, I'm surprised he can shave because he's sold so much of his soul. He can't even see his own reflection. Um, you know, but I think that that stuff is, is real, but I'm, I'm, I'm more and more encouraged that most Americans are kind of like closet normals. Um, you know, and we may disagree about, you know, spending levels or debt or taxes or whatever, but they don't want the craziness. And I think the yearning and hunger for normalcy is actually really encouraging about the, the sort of seed stock of American politics. Okay, so let me ask you this particular question. I wanted a world in which uh, the, the Republican Party would repudiate Trump. Liz Cheney, after January 6th, said, we, you know, we have to st take a stand against this. She gets 10 Republicans behind her. For a minute there, I thought, this is going to be the moment. They're going to reject Trump. They're going to repudiate it. This was too much. That didn't happen. She's getting purged. Oh, my God, it's horrible. Then Glenn Youngkin wins, right? Mm -hmm. Are you okay with the world in which, instead of the Republican Party ever repudiating Trump and Trumpism, they just sort of quietly let it slide away? Right. And he doesn't Trump. I, I say so the president represents so much of why I ran, said, uh, said Youngkin. But Trump stays on the sidelines. They just sort of try to forget about it. Well, I, mean, I think asking, am I OK with a world that is the right way to ask it? Because, first of all, the world is going to do what its world's going to do. Right. And um, and making a certain amount of peace about that is a way to get through life in a, in a healthier frame of mind. Would I rather? A Republican Party that repudiated Trump? Absolutely. Um, would I rather a uh, Congress that did the impeachment the right way either time and impeached him and, re and barred him from public office ever again? Absolutely. I think Trump is a bad person by virtually almost every definition of, you know, there's no, there's no definition of good character Trump can clear. Um, and he's done lasting damage to things I really, really care about starting with the country, but also, you know, the conservative movement and whatnot. But I've lost those arguments as a political matter. If the only way the Republican Party can get past Trump is by pulling a Yunkin, I find it distasteful. It's why I would never run for office because I think like lying is gross. Um, but, you know, most of the Republican politicians I talk to, and admit there's a selection bias there, but because they're willing to talk to me, by definition, they're not, you know, like, Gosar does not want to meet with me, right? Um, but they're closet normals. They are really mad about what Trump has done to the party. They're really mad about what cable news um, in the Trumpian era requires of them. They can't get on TV unless they're willing to make outlandish statements and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, if the only way the Republican Party can get back to normal is to shrink the tumor of Trump 
until he departs this mortal coil. It's not my plan A. But I will be happier that that happens than if the party actually embraces all of the crazy Trumpy stuff and makes them matters of principle. And that's why I keep picking these fights with the national conservatives, because that's what I think they're doing is they are trying to create an ideological, coherent rationale, post-Trump rationale for Trumpism. And I think that is horrible. Um, but yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay with it. If that, that to me is like, if, if that's the most, it's not the best case scenario, but it's a better scenario than a lot of other scenarios. No, I mean, you know, I mean, no, I, I, that's, that's cause I, 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 it, I think this is what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, as you point out, it's better than if they go, go, go full Trump. Um, you know, they, the, what I, I don't want to be too optimistic about it in the sense that I think like the attack on big tech does, does show that the Republicans have realized that, you know, I mean, Trump's great insight was to combine sort of Republican militarism about foreign policy, although like not in a, not, not in an actual principled way, but with democratic, um, you know, uh, uh, nationalism about economics, right? You know, why can't we be both? Right. And I do think that's what's going to happen with a Republican party is, is going to attack big tech and they're going to be for all kinds of regulations to sort of make they're, 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 they're becoming a populist party in the style of Trump. And they're going to keep some of those elements, but some of the grossest stuff about Trump, they're going to, as you say, shrink the tumor. Um, and I guess I just got to make my peace with it. That's the way it's going to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, take solace in the fact that history is going to be very unkind to Donald Trump. Um, you think? I, I, I'm, I'd like to believe that, but I'm just not sure. Did you ever watch uh, 30 Rock? Uh, no, no. Oh, okay. Well, there's a wonderful character in it. I've been meaning to write this, but it's so dated now for a long time. I think he was the first. There's a character in it who dated Tina Fey in it. I uh, mean, uh, was it Dennis? And at one point, Alec Baldwin, who didn't have a gun at that point, asked Dennis what his politics were. And he was a classic sort of bridge and tunnel New Yorker, this guy. And he said, fiscally liberal, socially conservative. And um, I think in a lot of ways, that is the, what Trump captured, is this sort of bridge and tunnel populism of the sort of New York Post variety, which can translate as populism to the rest of the country if it's sort of fiscally profligate, but socially conservative. And... Um, in a new kind of way of social conservatism. And he did that. I don't like it. I think it's less, I, I think one of the things I took out of the Yunkin victory was that, hey, it turns out that suburban voters are better voters um, if you can get them. And that's what I've been arguing for a very long time. And, and they got them. And maybe they'll send a certain signal to a lot of Republican politicians. I also think, one of the great things, which you guys, your team or your side, I should say, <laughs> should celebrate more and really beat over the heads of Republicans is that Virginia proved that voter turnout is not the enemy of Republicans. So stop coming up with these stupid ways to restrict voting when it turns out that, like, if you can turn out your coalition, it voter turnout is your friend. And so maybe concentrate on that instead of trying to, like, you know, spinal tap, make voting more selective kind of thing. <laughs> So, yeah. All right. You baited me in. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I've been, I, I think I've, I've gone full pedorits on this thing by talking too much and I apologize. <laughs> um, uh, but I hope you'll come back. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving and, uh, and thanks for coming on.
Thanks, Jonah. All right. So uh, I kept trying to get out um, and Will dragged me back in. And uh, as you can tell, I like talking to Will. Um, and um, apologize about the length. I apologize if I've been too dour of late. Um, uh, I have no, well, I have excuses or at least I have explanations, but I'm not going to dwell on that because you don't want to hear about, you know, how difficult it is to dispose of bodies in this day and age. Um, so, uh, I, I guess there's going to be a solo remnant after this. And then there's a real remnant on Tuesday. Anyway, whenever you hear this podcast in the space time continuum, even if I've wished you a happy Thanksgiving another time, which I think I will, um, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you to everybody for your support and your consideration. And um, I will be giving fun updates from the road. I am literally going to drive with my dogs by myself to uh, Washington State. I'm leaving Friday morning very early. And I will give you, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I'll give you reports about gas prices across these United States. Um, why I'm doing this is complicated. Partly it's because I'm stupid. Um, partly because I like these kinds of things. Partly because we couldn't find good dog sitting over Thanksgiving. And so we figured we'll take the dogs with us. And partly it's because my wife is crashing on a project and she couldn't afford um, to uh, do three days on the road or four days on the road. So she's going to fly out and I'll meet her out there. But it should be fun. Um, the dogs uh, will have their own opinion about it. Um, and now I'm just eating up time. So I'm going to say thanks again for listening. Thanks for everything. And all will be explained in due course. And uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah.